You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community. Hello, welcome to the Daily Nationalist. This is being recorded on the 20th of February, 2024, which also, by the way, just so happens to be my second wedding anniversary. So I'm recording this a little bit early. Uh, This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and this is being broadcast on Radio Albion. This week, something that I had completely forgotten about um, has come up again. Back in 2017, the U.S., using the Ukrainian government that it controls, brought a court case to the International Court of Justice, the ICJ. I talked about it at the time, and since a ruling was, was so long in coming, I kind of forgot. And the ruling came on the 31st of January. I should also note that we are at the 10-year anniversary of the Maidan Revolution um, and all that that implies for the relationship of Russia and the Western world and Russia and what I think is a very small minority of Ukrainians, especially wealthy ones. And I was reminded of all of this, an article by Kit Clarenberg, who normally writes on um, anti-Zionist issues. His article came out yesterday. Um, I don't have to tell you that that this has been kept out of the press. I've read the summary decision, which itself is is fifty pages, uh, which is mostly technicalities. It's not a it's not pleasant reading whatsoever. But um, I extracted as as did him, as did uh, Clarenberg. Uh, what's important here, and it's very bad news for the Western world. Um, and related to that, that just around the same time this ruling came out, um, the Russians uh, offered proof to everybody of things that we already knew. That is to say that the, the U.S., through its Ukrainian client, uh, is using chemical weapons on the battlefield as an act of utter desperation. And that is becoming increasingly well known. Now, I came across that the other day on Sputnik which I understand is illegal in, um, in the European Union, or at least Britain and, and Germany. I'm not sure if it's the entire Union, as is Russia Today and, and a whole bunch of other publications. So clearly there's, there's something to hide. Now, you know, for so many years, I've used the defense mechanism, a psychological projection, to explain a lot of American uh, foreign policy and certainly the rhetoric and the propaganda that surrounds justifying that foreign policy. And this is one of the more blatant cases because Ukraine brought back in 2017 
a case against Russia accusing them of every conceivable kind of, of terrorism, uh, every aspect of it that's codified in international law, um, and specifically uh, using as the authorities the conventions against financing terrorism. Of course, they're talking about the Donbass. They're talking about the People's Republic of, of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, that was the main part of their claim years ago. The other part, believe it or not, was the claim that they were the Russians were racially discriminating against Ukrainians and Tartars in the Crimea since the revolution was derailed in 2014. The 13 judges of the court ruled in Moscow's favor, and the areas that they ruled against were extremely minor and really have no bearing or importance on anything. So it's really hard to avoid talking about psychology and projection when, as Ukraine is wiping out Russian culture wherever it possibly can, that is to say, Kiev in the U.S., they then bring Russia to court for doing the same things. And of course, they didn't do anything of the kind. Now, if this isn't projection, then nothing is. This is projection of an entire ruling class and those that, either through ignorance or or um, ill will, support them. Uh, uh, the summary really gives everything you need, but I also read individual judges, um, and they were from all over the planet. A guy from India, there's a guy with a, with a Georgian name, a guy from Central Asia, they're all over the place. Um, and, you know, this is the second time, more or less the second time, that the ICJ has ruled uh, the right way. And we talked about the South African case relative to Israel. And now we're talking about it again. And the South African case wasn't as um, uh, uh, as harsh as their rejection of the Ukrainian claims. Of course, the court came down hard on them. But regardless of what happened in South Africa, at least the documents are out there. And as, as we speak, the U.S. is figuring out ways to punish uh, the South Africa that it helped bring about through the fall of uh, apartheid 30 years ago, the unfortunate fall of apartheid. So those are the two things that Ukraine brought against Russia in 2017. And the simple fact of the matter is that the Ukrainian government's narrative about events in Crimea and the Donbass have been completely rejected by the court. Every university professor, every journalist, every faker uh, on television, every security official, military official, intelligence official, politicians from both parties now have been told that they don't know what they're talking about, which, of course, I could have told them a long time ago. And given that the nature of these accusations, you can rest assured that whatever it's accusing Russia of, it's doing it. Now, we're talking about a tiny ruling class in Kiev. We're not talking about Ukraine. No one supports the government in, in Kiev. And it does rule through actual terror. And we'll get to exactly what that means here in a minute. Now, it's taken a long time for Westerners to finally realize that this war has been lost. It's been lost for a long time. Even going so far as to say the front line is, is collapsed. 
And on top of that, the ICJ's rulings really condemning the Ukraine for even bringing this stuff up with almost no evidence. Of course, that was ignored by the press. But of course, the damage has been done and billions are going to be sent, never to be seen again, uh, to the American client uh, in, in Kiev. And in addition to the fact that that government's popularity in Ukraine is about zero, um, and no one trusts it. I mean, they they use all kinds of, um, uh, you know, kidnapping everything they can to get people to the front line who have no idea what they're doing. You know, they're slaughtering people. Um, you know, very much, you know, this, this should have ended a long time ago. But we also have to remember that nothing destroys a government's legitimacy like a lost war. Not only has this war been, war been lost, but it's exposed the oligarchy there for what it is. And, you know, there's really, it's really a one-party state now, which the U.S. calls a democracy. So that is quite consistent with the Western definition. I'll keep saying that over and over again. The Western government, the media uh, apparatus, and the academics, they are complicit in all of this. And Clarenberg says, uh, says the same thing. Now, the more minor charges uh, concern Crimea, and this is really, this is an American thing. You know, I don't think Kiev barely knew that they were doing this. Um, but that there were acts of racial discrimination. And from the reunion of uh, overwhelming vote and referendum in March of 2014, the U.S. through Kiev argued that the Russians had engaged in a state-sanctioned campaign of measures that, quote, discriminate against persons of Crimean Tartar origin based on their ethnic origin or race. Now, the ICJ not only slapped all of these down, but actually went even uh, farther than that, condemning the lack of evidence and the quality of evidence that they thought in a very insulting way would, would win the day. So the court said they were not convinced uh, that there was any discrimination against Tartars who were normally pro-Russian or Ukrainians who, you know, no one, I mean, you could be the most ardent supporter of Ukrainian independence. No one wants to live there. There is no functional economy. There is no free media at any level. They, they, they've, they've destroyed the country in every way you can imagine. And of course, the U.S. runs it regardless. Now, if there were any unbalanced people who may have supported that government, they long since left. And I'm not sure to go where, because there's nothing for them to do in, uh, in Kiev or, or anywhere else in the western part of that, of that country. So, it's a stupid argument, because these people wanted nothing more than to become part of the Russian Federation. Why they would harm anybody, you know, it was, I think it was a 94%... Um, referendum with a very high turnout, a very similar kind of turnout. A lot of witness testimony was dismissed, partially because of, you know these people collected evidence many, many years after the events, and there was no corroborating documentation, which is an exact quote from, from the court. And they said this has to be treated with caution because these people who testified, either in writing or verbally, had an interest in this. So, let me quote from the decision. The reports relied on by Ukraine are of limited value in confirming 
that the relevant measures are of a racially discriminatory character. Ukraine has not demonstrated reasonable grounds to suspect that racial discrimination had taken place, which should have prompted the Russian authorities to investigate. Now, they also went so far as to say that the media there, which, believe it or not, they used as evidence uh, against Russia, the court said, this is an evidence capable of proving facts. And that shows you how the, the court, which really is the creation of the United States, uh, takes the media, how seriously it takes the media. It doesn't take them seriously at all, whether in Kiev or elsewhere. Because they were using everything from the New York Times on down, and it was so bad, it was so poorly done, that the judges from all over the world said it doesn't, doesn't prove anything. And that's the nature of, of journalism. And it's shocking from what ordinarily is a hostile source. Remember that uh, arrest warrant that the, that the regime had uh, against Putin. Now, how, what's the status of that, given what the court is saying about these, these accusations? You know, using NGOs to support its arguments, using American intelligence, and using this has all been stricken down by the court as, despite it being a Western institution, as being irrelevant, distorted, and unable to prove anything. Believe it or not, even the Ukrainians even said that forcing Crimeans to choose between Russian and Ukrainian citizenship was a difficulty, was a was a was an impossible choice. And the the court, you know, pretty much laughed it off. They said the Russian Federation produced evidence substantiating its attempts at preserving Ukrainian cultural heritage. At the same time, they said that ethnic Ukrainian and Crimean Tartar organizations were successful in applying to hold various cultural events. And multiple events organized by ethnic Russians were in fact denied. In other words, to show that they will, you know, they went out of their way to show that Crimea is going to be a, a part of Russia in the best possible way. Ethnic origin had nothing to do with any policy here, nor, nor should it, when you consider that 95% of them voted to become a, a, uh, a part of Russia, which also includes a vote against having anything to do with the fourth world state of, uh, of Ukraine. Ukrainians went so far as to say, well, there is a, a huge reduction in demand in Crimea for education in the Ukrainian language. That was, for them, a sign that there was a deliberate uh, uh, suppression of teaching in the Ukrainian language. Uh, this also, because there's not a whole lot of evidence for it, it certainly existed, but what it means is another matter. And the court said, well, this is a dominant Russian cultural environment, and when you have the departure of anyone who wanted to stay in Ukraine, which was very few, um, had left the country anyway. They want to be a part of Russia. That's why they voted in such huge numbers. The Ukrainian language, unfortunately, now is stigmatized throughout the area as the language of, of the regime. Now, the only thing that the court had to say really doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. The only thing that they agreed with, symbolically, the, this, this Ukrainian-U.S. case, is that it, Russia didn't adequately demonstrate that it complied with its duty to protect the rights of ethnic Ukrainians from a disparate adverse effect 
based on ethnic origin. Now, they said this, but also they said they can't conclude on the basis of what was presented as evidence that, for example, parents have been subjected to harassment or negative conduct aimed at deterring them from articulating any kind of uh, ethnic preference. So, in other words, the court said, well, maybe that's true, um, but adverse effect doesn't prove the intent of the government to... to um, discriminate against them or, or harass them. And, you know, I don't have to tell you, especially my audience, Ukrainians do this every single day. Now, the terrorism issue is far more significant. Um, so the court, just you know, the, the discrimination stuff, they pretty much eliminated very quickly. They even used the uh, 2014 downing of the MH17. We've talked about that a long time ago. Um, and you know that Kiev's and American action prior to the invasion um, was called the anti-terrorism operation or anti-terrorist operation, ATO. Well, just because they call it that doesn't mean that's what it is. In fact, the court vehemently and over and over again rejected the idea that what's happened from 2014 to the day of the invasion, um, eight years later, almost exactly eight years later, um, was in fact terrorism in any normal sense of the term. So the court reaffirmed, and I'm quoting them directly here, that an organization cannot be considered to be terrorist just because one state labels it that way. Neither Donbass Republic, you know, the Donetsk and Luhansk Republics, had ever been characterized prior to that, during that war, as being terrorist uh, by an organ of the UN. So they tried to claim that the, the uprising in the East was like an Al-Qaeda operation. And the court, again, a Western court, um, and they had been propagandized like everyone else, said there's simply no reason to believe that and no evidence supplied to convince us of that. The court said that what the U.S. and Ukrainians gave as evidence they called vague and highly generalized in other words there was nothing of substance there was nothing there wasn't even a logical argumentation let alone any actual pieces of evidence that would convince somebody but even the things the very minor issues as i mentioned that the court agreed with are contradicted right in the very same sections by the court saying we don't really have any evidence of this in other words they, they said that, that Moscow didn't look into those who had been accused of terrorist acts by Kiev and even the U.S. and the U.K., and that somehow was a problem. Well, that's not exactly uh, a damning result, but it was really the only symbolic victory that they that the Ukrainians could have here. Um, but their, their very existence, the court said, couldn't be verified. In other words, they didn't believe a thing that Kiev, through the U.S., brought in front of the court. There was no terrorism. This was a counterinsurgency campaign. There was no evidence. And this is, this is where, if the evidence existed, this is where it would have come out. Over the many years, the court has been dealing with this, um, including the invasion of Ukraine. Remember, this is two years later now, uh, the invasion, that, that nothing that the U.S., the media, intelligence, 
has attributed to the Kremlin has been demonstrated. It's over. I mean, of course, I've been saying this since the day it happened. Many of you who've been listening to me for a long time are aware of this. I didn't need the court to tell me that. I have read the Ukrainian case. I know the Ukrainian. You have to, you have to know your opponent before you can come up with a good uh, argument against them. And it's always been very bad. So on page six of the summary, remember they they speak in general in a in a diplomatic kind of language. And remember this: the accusations had to do not so much with Russia directly, although that did come later, and it ended up the same way. But remember, this is from 2014. Um, to 2017 when this was first filed, and, and they kept adding as time went on. So they were talking about the financing. That, that was the authority that they used, that particular convention, the ICSFT, um, the International Convention for the Suppression of the Financing of Terrorism, signed by most countries on the planet in December of, of 1999. So the point that Ukraine tried to make is that this was a terrorist operation and, you know, the uprising, uh, the creation of the Donbass republics. Russia financed it. Russia aided it in many ways. Therefore, Moscow is responsible for financing terrorism. Either way, it exonerates both parties. Um, and the court said, you know, the militias in eastern Ukraine were not notorious for carrying out predicate acts. Predicate acts being acts that would fall under the definition of terrorism. They go so far to say, this is on page six of the summary, the characterization by a single state, the characterization of another group as terrorist by one state is on its own insufficient. In other words, Ukraine has no right to make these judgments because, among many other things, it has a, an emotional interest in what's happening in the East. This is a, a means of um, uh, the courts justifying. This is, you know, separatist uh, movements, separatist violence in a military sense do not come under any definition of terrorism, and therefore anyone who assists it can't be accused of financing it. Separatism, in other words, is not an act of terror. Now the court has ruled on that. Not that, not that the court can do very much. But this is not only a, a you know international victory, but a but a propaganda victory for Russia. Um, why in heaven's name would a separatist group start hurting civilians in their own country that speak Russian? The same people who voted like in Crimea in huge numbers to be a part of, of Russia. Ukraine certainly is about the last country that would be trusted to make it this determination. They're guerrilla groups, mostly actually now regular armed forces seeking to escape from Ukraine. Now they have successfully done so, and the invasion has made that uh, de facto reality. Actually, now a de jure reality since they voted. And the reasons they want to escape Ukraine is precisely what the Ukrainians accuse the Russians of. Now, the court says this, and this is extremely interesting. I have this underlined here. The court notes that it is not enough for deliberate killings or serious bodily injury to civilians to have occurred. It is also essential to demonstrate that the purpose of such an act 
by its nature or context is to intimidate a population or to compel a government or an uh, international organization to do or abstain from doing any act. In other words, civilians are going to be killed in war. And if it's killed in, in, in a war that has a right to exist, it's not an act of terrorism. You know, they, they defined terrorism like the media does without any regard to any definition. Ultimately, the court says that just because Kiev doesn't like something doesn't make it uh, uh, an act of terrorism. The court says, and this is pretty much the harshest they get, the court says that Ukraine does not have sufficient evidence to characterize any of the armed groups implicated by Ukraine in the commission of the alleged uh, predicate acts as groups notorious for committing such acts, in other words, terrorist groups. Hence, Russia, of course, can't be implicated if there's no terrorism to begin with. It cannot be inferred from the nature, in other words, of the Donbass militias that they're, in, that they're a, a group that uh, commits any terrorist act. So the International Court, a Western NATO-based ICJ, has condemned the very name of the ATO, of the uh, the name of the war, uh, up until the, the invasion, of course, the militias of, of eastern Ukraine. Ukraine did not provide the evidence that Russia or any of its forces in the east has committed any act of terror whatsoever. In other words, there are separatist groups with very good reason to take up arms. A group actually has to function as a terror group as a matter of course. Now, let me be clear. I want to use the International Convention for the suppression of the financing of terrorism. And they actually have, you know, they have no choice but to define what terrorism is in Article 2. And we have to be clear here. The media doesn't know, you know what this is. We have to know what it is. And it's defined as any act intended to cause death or serious bodily injury to a civilian or to any other person not taking an active part in the hostilities in a situation of armed conflict when the purpose of such an act, by its nature or context, is to intimidate a population or to compel a government or an international organization to do or abstain from doing any act. That's a, the, the, a longer definition than I, I mentioned above. It's reasonable. It's usable. It has to be a violent act designed to cause death and destruction exclusively against civilians having nothing to do with an ongoing war. In other words, to force a population to live in fear and to coerce the ruling authorities to do something that would benefit them. Back in 2005, Council of Europe put out the uh, Convention on the Prevention of Terrorism, and they define it in a kind of a similar way. And they say, acts of terrorism have the purpose by their very nature or context to seriously intimidate a population or unduly compel a government to perform or abstain from performing any act or seriously destabilize or destroy the fundamental political, constitutional, economic, or social structures of a country or an international organization. And that's the more detailed definition of what terrorism is. Just the simple fact that the population of eastern Ukraine is pro-Russian and supports the militias is enough. Um, and, and while the court doesn't mention that, it, it clearly was behind everything they said. There's no, a separatist movement isn't inherently a terrorist movement unless they um, engage in acts precisely like this. 
They have no reason or incentive to attack their own people. Ukraine does, though. But it didn't matter, since Ukraine offered zero evidence. Regardless, now, I also want to mention what I came across in Sputnik. I only have a few minutes here, but Russia has now proven cases of Ukrainian troops using U.S.-made chemical grenades uh, in this war. Igor Kurilov, a lieutenant general, who was the head of the radiation, chemical, and biological defense troops of the Russian armed forces, and they are the ones who have doc- uh, documented cases of the use of, of poisonous chemicals by the Ukrainian military. And they're mostly of American... You know, the U.S. claimed it destroyed its chemical weapon stocks, I think, back in 2007. And, of course, that was a lie. They're using, among other things, grenades loaded with, well, this is, you know, CS gas. Well, it depends on the dose of the CS gas or, or tear gas. But in large doses, not only do you have skin burns, but respiratory paralysis. And that is a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1997. Ukraine, the, 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 the Russians have this. The HIMARS system has chemical weapons. Um, even even the howitzers, the, the Patriot uh, Missile Defense Complexes, directly from the U.S., Igor Nikulin, who um, used to be a member of the U.N. Commission on Chemical and Biological Weapons. He said the United States is openly violating the Chemical Weapons Convention, which itself had assigned. Um, and he's well aware that the Ukrainian armed forces would use these against the Russian military. Of course, Nikulin makes the point that the U.S. is creating all of this. He says, not a single terrorist act was committed on Russian territory without the participation of American or British curators, especially now when the Ukrainian military is on the verge of defeat. The West is assisting Ukraine with every possible means uh, in its possession. Now, the gases that they have proof of, there was one that was dropped from a um, UAV on Russian positions in the Krasny Liman area uh, using cyanocarbons. Uh, hydrocyanic acid. In the U.S., they, they use it in gas chambers, which he, he mentioned. They've also found uh, chloropetrin, uh, chloroacetophenol, and, uh, you know, those are, those are uh, in lower concentrations used for riot control, but these are higher concentrations. Anthroquinone is a toxic chemical. Let me quote um, um, Nikulin directly. Anthroquinone is used in grenades dropped from drones. Yes, this is a substance on the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons list. It's quite dangerous, even lethal. It affects the kidneys and the respiratory system, causing their failure. If, for example, the same chloropetrin or chloroacetophenol is considered a non-lethal weapon, although, again, it can become lethal, if a person ends up in a cloud of this, this anthroquinone is a lethal weapon. It is truly a chemical weapon. And that they are have used this and continue to plan using this as an act of desperation, trying to gain some foothold in, in Zaporozhye, Kharkiv, Sumy, um, and the UN. I'm uh, sorry, the the Ukrainians with U.S. support placed tanks with hydrocyanic acid and ammonia, along with other you know uh, chemicals within their shells. So even if these tanks were blown up. And, you know, Russian units are, are moving nearby. They can be affected by it. This is, of course, an open use of chemical weapons, simply assuming that the media will cover for them. He 
has proven, of course, and I think we knew this already, that the U.S. still has two facilities within the country, within the United States, where the chemical weapons can be found. Again, they said that they destroyed everything in 2007, but that's a lie. The U.S. identified more than 4,500 artillery and rocket chemical munitions with the old mustard gas and siren gas in its stockpiles in Iraq. And no one, they, they don't tell the OPCW, the, the watchdog groups, actually what they're doing with it. No one knows what happened to these. He has the evidence, unlike the Ukrainians. But now you have everything from, you know, collecting samples to pictures and video. The Ukrainians using American-supplied chemical munitions. Um, and they recorded everything you could possibly want. The grenades or shells, missiles. And this is what happens when you have a lost war. Um, Recent has been found all over the place. Enough people have been have been hospitalized. In August of 2022, the poisoning agent BZ was used. Uh, January of 2024, uh, militopol or Beosporin vials were found in a captured area. February 2023, 8th and 16th. Cases of hydrocyanic acid used with drones were recorded and captured. January 31st, uh, the Ukrainian forces used an unknown toxic chemical and it turned out to be anthroquinone. Um, American-made gas grenades were used in the area of, you know, uh, the gas that uh, directed kidney failure in the area of Krasny Leman. June of 2023, a drone with a plastic container of uh, chloroacetophenone and chloropicerin was used against the Russian forces near, uh, near uh, Robotino. So this is, um, this is now not a matter of opinion, but a matter of fact. And you clearly can see the, um, the connection between the humiliating defeat legally at the International uh, Criminal Court of Justice, the International Court of Justice, I should say, and the fact that actual acts of terrorism are being used because not only are chemical weapons banned, all of these are banned uh, to use on the battlefield, but they, of course, affect civilians, since anything can happen. Um, it doesn't take much for the wind to carry them into places they're not supposed to go. This is for the same reason that the cluster munitions have been banned, that certain types of mines have been banned, because it stays there forever. It poisons everything around it. These are, of course, uh, acts of terror. Um, and, uh, and, of course, as the war has clearly been lost... This is all the Ukrainians can do. And it turns out, because of the failure at the International Criminal Court, or the International Court of Justice, um, they don't seem to be doing the Americans' bidding anymore. And that in and of itself is extremely uh, important and uh, gives us a little bit of optimism. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community.